Let's stand together for the reading of God's word as we continue ahead together in the book of Acts. We're now into chapter three. We'll be looking at verses one through 11 today. The title of today's sermon is filled with wonder and amazement. I'll read from verse 42 of chapter two through to the end of chapter three. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. 
Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So here in today's text, we see a specific example of what Luke had already said in verse 43, when he said, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. We've seen this same kind of post miracle amazement and curiosity already in Acts chapter two, verses six and seven. It goes like this. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. And were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? So, today's text, we see the Lord continues to pour out his Holy Spirit upon his people, displaying his signs and wonders, and creating amazement and curiosity in the people. We will see Peter once again preach into this miracle wrought public curiosity as we move forward in the in chapter three and the lord will again grow his church through this preaching as we see in chapter four verse four but also we see the preaching will trigger persecution of the church persecution begins in verses one through three of chapter four so the first time peter preached we saw the church growing we saw the church blessed we saw the favor of the people The second time he preaches, we see the other side of that coin. We see the persecution begins. Matthew Henry says, We are told in general that many signs and wonders were done by the apostles, which are not written in this book. But here we have one given us for an instance. As they wrought miracles not upon everybody, as everybody had occasion for them, but as the Holy Spirit gave direction so as to answer the end of their commission. So all the miracles they did work are not written in this book, but such only are recorded as the Holy Ghost thought fit to answer the end of this sacred history. So we have this example given to us in today's text. We'll look at the setting. We'll think about this certain lame man, verses two and three describe him. And and there's some more information about him um, later on in Acts. We'll look at the healing, verses four through seven. We'll see his response, walking, leaping, and praising God. 
And we'll see how the people are impacted by this, filled with wonder and amazement, and as usual, some considerations to bring these eternal principles home to our day today. So the setting. Verse 1 says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So who is there? Peter and John. Christ's rock, if you will, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. They're together. You know, the last time we saw them mentioned working together in Luke's writing, in volume 1, the gospel, was the day of the Last Supper. Do you recall that? And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Remember, this is the episode where Christ directs them to follow the man with the water pitcher. Here's the text. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished furnished upper room. There, make ready. So they went and found it, just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, in John's gospel, we see Peter and John were together on Resurrection Sunday morning. You recall that? We're not told why they are together at this time, but they are. Last we've seen of Peter before this moment mentioned here is his, before that particular moment where they're together on Resurrection Sunday morning is his thrice denial of the Lord. And when you look at the chronology of the Gospels. Now he and John learn of the empty tomb together and they run together to, to see the empty tomb. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. This is in John 20. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and John learned of the empty tomb together while they were together. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. So they had a foot race to the tomb together that morning. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So Peter and John, you can see here, they they share some very special memories together, the two of them, leading up to this moment on their way to the temple to pray here in the springtime of AD 30, some days after Pentecost. Not only did they witness Christ's life and work alongside the other apostles seeing him, for those three years of his public ministry, but they also have these moments that are recorded for us of just the two of them. They worked together to prepare the Last Supper meal. Think about that. They were the ones who went there and put it all together. They prepared that meal for Christ and the other disciples. They're also together this first Sabbath morning, the morning of Christ's resurrection. And then they have a foot race together to the empty tomb, which 
John was happy to tell us who won that foot race. <laughs> and then they, they see the inside of the tomb essentially together for the first time. They witness this empty tomb together. And then they go away, it says, to their own homes. So apparently they didn't live together. Apparently they went back to their separate dwelling places. Matthew Henry says, Peter and John had each of them a brother among the twelve, with whom they were coupled when they were sent out. Yet now they seem to be knit together more closely than either of them to his brother, for the bond of friendship is sometimes stronger than that of relation. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Peter and John seem to have had a peculiar intimacy after Christ's resurrection more than before, John 20, verse 2. The reason of which, Matthew Henry says, the reason of which, if I may have liberty to conjecture, might be, that, might be this, that John, a disciple made up of love, was more compassionate to Peter upon his fall and repentance and more tender of him in his bitter weeping for his sin than any other of the apostles were, and more solicitous to restore him in the spirit of meekness, which made him very dear to Peter ever after. And it was good evidence of Peter's acceptance with God upon his repentance that Christ's favorite was made, was made his bosom friend. So we see the, the sweetness of their friendship is something that we shouldn't just pass by and overlook as we read this text. There's things for us to learn about Christian friendship from Peter and John. So what are they doing? What are these two friends doing? Well, they're walking together to go to prayer. And it's important, I think, to note the proximity of their dwelling place. It made it possible for them to walk the temple together. So they lived close enough to walk to the temple and they lived close enough to one another to walk together to the temple. Had they been removed out of Jerusalem, this would not have been possible. Proximity to one another was an essential element necessary for this event to occur. And it goes back to what we looked at before, that one of the fruits of the thriving church is that they were together. They were all together. Next, we see the time and place of this event. They were walking together to go to the temple for the hour of prayer in the afternoon. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. So we get a more detailed picture here also of their daily life. We get to see a, a peek into the patterns of their daily living. And it appears it was likely their daily practice to be at the temple for the times of prayer. Matthew Henry says, It was in the temple whither Peter and John went up together because it was the place of concourse. There were the shoals of fish among which the net of the gospel was to be cast, especially during the days of Pentecost, within the compass of which we may suppose this to have happened. Note, it is good to go up to the temple to attend on public ordinances and it is comfortable to go up together to the temple I was glad when they said unto me, let us go. The best society is society in worshiping God. With reverence to public worship, there must be a house of prayer and an hour of prayer. The ninth hour, that is three o'clock in the afternoon, was one of the hours of prayer among the Jews. Nine in the morning and 12 at noon 
where the other two can see Psalm 55, 17 in Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. It is of use for private Christians so far to have their hours of prayer as may serve, though not to bind, yet to remind conscience. Everything is beautiful in its season. So we also learn about the regular practice of daily prayer from this scripture. So next, verses 2 and 3, tell us about a certain lame man. Let's learn about him together. Uh, Perhaps even put yourself in his shoes, if you will. A certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. <clears throat> so what is it about this uh, beautiful gate? I think it's uh, worth, uh, worth noting that we get a little bit more about the setting. So before we dive right into about this lame man, hear the words of Edersheim. At the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, Edersheim says, these eight side gates, as we may call them, were all two-leaved, wide, high with superstructures and chambers supported by two pillars and covered with gold and silver plating. But far more magnificent than any of them was the ninth or the eastern gate, which formed the principal entrance into the temple. The ascent to it was from the terrace by 12 easy steps. The gate itself was made of dazzling Corinthian brass, most richly ornamented, and so massive were its double doors that it needed the united strength of 20 men to open and to close them. This was the beautiful gate, and on its steps had they been wont these many years to lay this lame man. Just as privileged beggars now lie at the entrance to continental cathedrals, no wonder that all Jerusalem knew him. So this man was born, we're told. See, he was lame from his mother's womb. He was born with defective feet and ankles at the very least. It appears as though that's where his defect was, his physical defect, because we're told about his feet and ankles being immediately strengthened. Those with inborn physical impairments are often the hardest to heal with typical medical means. This man has been unable to walk for his entire life, always dependent upon the care of others, even needing to be carried, we are told. This man has what surely in his eyes and the eyes of others is an invincible ailment that he will take to his grave. Bach says, the fact that the condition is from birth intensifies its severity. Vanderhorst argues that this word refers not to complete paralysis, but to damage to the feet, ankles, the knees, or the hips. So the man is crippled, but he's not completely paralyzed. This man has never known anything else, nor can he do anything. So he's never walked rightly. He has no memory of an experience of walking properly. He can't even savor the memories of walking and leaping in his mind. We also learn the lame man's approximate age from later on in chapter 4, verse 22. It says, 
For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So there's this man over 40 years old who's had this problem in his feet and ankles since before he was born. So what do we know about him? It says, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. So what has his life practice been decade after decade? On each day, those who helped this man, they would lay him there at the beautiful gate, perhaps other gates, the entrance there to the temple where the people go. This lame man was well known, therefore, to the people of Jerusalem. Decades of knowledge, decades of alms dropped in his cup or his hat. So had this man, do you wonder, had he ever seen or heard of Jesus during our Lord's earthly ministry? It seems very likely that he would have at least heard of Jesus, perhaps even saw him. And so we need to take note here that Jesus did not heal every lame person in Israel or in Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, there will always be the sick amongst us. There will always be those who need assistance amongst us. So let us be vigilant to serve. Next, why was he there? To ask alms from those who entered the temple, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. So he was doing his work. He was agreeable to be laid there and to ask for alms. So why is he there? He's begging for his sustenance, which for him is his daily work. It would seem that he was there most days. I, I would guess that perhaps if the weather was a threat to him, perhaps he wouldn't be there on those days. But he was there, and this was work for him. While his feet and ankle were froze, ankles were frozen, his lips and his tongue were free, we see. He asked them for alms. He did his part. So, but we can see also that while his speech was intact, His faith was limited. His faith was limited. He asked only for alms. Matthew Henry says about this, he begged of Peter and John, begged an alms. This was the utmost he expected from them who had the reputation of being charitable men and who, though they had not much, yet did good with what they had. It was not many weeks ago that the blind and the lame came to Christ in the temple and were healed there. We see that in Matthew 21. And why might not he have asked more than an alms if he knew that Peter and John were Christ's messengers and preached and wrought miracles in his name? But he had that done for him, which he looked not for. Listen, he had that done for him, which he looked not for. He asked an alms and he had a cure. And I wonder how often we seek only alms from God when so much more he will give to us. Also note here the extent of our requests before God's throne in no way limits how much God will do for us, his beloved. It should be of great encouragement to us to know the limitations of our faith by no means put limits upon our Father's love and kindness to us, his people. His compassion far outstrips our faith over and over again. Perhaps the greatest 
faith growth we need is to believe in his great love and his great willingness to have compassion upon us as people. What happens in the the healing? Verses 4 through 7, we're told, fixing his eyes on him with with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So this lame man was apt to speak and ask alms without looking at those from whom he begged. It appears as though, at least in this moment, it's a clue to his practice that he would kind of speak out, but he wouldn't necessarily look up. For how many decades had he spoken these words asking for alms? How many lifeless coins had fallen to his cup or into his hat from so many whose faces that he did not engage? But John and Peter, men of faith, quickly fixed their eyes. They fixed their eyes upon this lame beggar. They heard his words and they looked at his face. How apt are we to look upon the suffering when they seek our aid? Would we prefer to give a check in the mail and not have to observe the suffering in person? Isn't it, is, isn't it easier to drop the coin in passing, never looking, avoiding the pain of the sufferer and avoiding have to bump into the apathy in our own souls. Usually, it appears this was an anonymous, you know, mutually anonymous exchange, lifeless, impersonal, focused on the physical aspect of this man's need, and even then limited in its application. Peter and John would not, these men of faith, would not allow for such an empty, loveless exchange. And they had far more in mind for this transaction. Forty years. What kind of hope did he have in his soul? Who knows? We see later in the sermon that we, we, his faith is connected to his healing. In Peter's sermon. Peter connects this man's healing to this man's faith. So there was some spark of faith in this man's life. Was it before when he was crying for alms? Was it as Peter spoke to him? We're not told. But at least by the time that his feet are healed and he's rising up, he's praising God. There's evidence of faith. So they bid the lame man to look at them, and he did. And at the time, it appears it's because he expected to receive something from them. Alms. Matthew Henry says, and this is bringing it home to us. Our eye must be ever toward the Lord, the eye of our mind. And in token of this, the eye of the body may properly be fixed on those whom he employs as the ministers of his grace. This man needed not to be bidden twice to look on the apostles, For he justly thought this gave him cause to expect that he should receive something from them, and therefore he gave heed to them. Note, we must come to God both to attend on his word 
and to apply ourselves to Him in prayer with hearts fixed and expectations raised. So you see, he's comparing this lame man's response to the apostles to us and our response to God's Word when it comes to us. We must look up to heaven, going back to Henry. We must look up to heaven and expect to receive benefit by that which God speaks thence and an answer of peace to the prayers sent up thither. I will direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. So what happens next. They're looking at one another. Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Now that they have the man's attention, Peter takes the man's attention away from lesser concerns such as silver and gold and turns the man's attention to life's most critical concern. And it's not his feet. He says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, he draws the man's attention to Christ. Peter believes in Christ. John believes in Christ. They both believe that Jesus of Nazareth heals the sick and brings healing to the soul. And he tells this man who Jesus is. While the man's request was for alms, his deepest desire was to be healed so he could walk like other men. Can't you imagine how much he longed to be able to walk and to leap and to dance, to tippy-toe, to hop on one leg, to kick. The Lord Jesus Christ meets this man at that spot and heals him. Not just to give him physical wholeness, but also to bring him into the knowledge and love of Christ, which we'll see is mentioned about him by Peter in the sermon to come. Based upon the man's response, we can safely guess that he was amongst those added to the church after Peter's sermon there in Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Also, Note here that Peter and John are not distracted by the man's limited request. As ministers of the gospel of the kingdom, they have Christ's eyes. They have Christ's eyes to see and to minister to the deepest needs. They know that the presenting request of this man is just what's bringing him to them. And he knows, Peter and John, they know that the Lord gives so much more than the felt needs that draw people to Christ. Now, will we remember this as his ministers? Will we have a fuller view of individuals with whom we engage? And as we help and as we serve, we'll always have Christ's eye to bring total healing, to bring the words of Jesus of Nazareth to them so they may be healed fully. Matthew Henry says, Peter had not money to give him but one. So he's got two points he'll make here. First, he had that which was better. Such an interest in heaven, such a power from heaven as to be able to cure his disease. Now, stepping back from Henry, this is what Peter had, right? Peter had the riches of heaven. Peter had all the power of heaven given to him in the spirit. And he knew it. This is what he had. Note, says Henry, Those who are poor in the world may yet be rich, very rich in spiritual gifts, graces, and comforts. And brothers and sisters, backing away from Henry now, these are the treasures of life. Certainly there is that which we are capable of possessing, which is infinitely better than silver and gold. The merchandise and gain of it are 
better. We value heaven's treasures. And we understand that heaven's treasures are ours. And we can share those with others in the world. And it turns out that heaven's storehouse never grows scarce. Going back to Matthew Henry, secondly, he gave him that which was better, the cure of his disease, which he would gladly have given a great deal of silver and gold for if he had had it. And the cure could have been so and the cure could have been so obtained. This would enable him to work for his living so that he would not need to beg anymore. Nay, he would have to give to those that needed and it is more blessed to give than to receive. A miraculous cure would be a greater instance of God's favor and would put a greater honor upon him than thousands of gold and silver could. Observe, when Peter had no silver and no gold to give, yet, says he, such as I have, I give thee. So in one sense, he was empty-handed, but in another sense, we Christians are never empty-handed. What does he say to him? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this will be what Peter emphasizes at the very beginning in a number of sentences in his sermon to come. There is no healing apart from the name of Jesus Christ. There's no power. There's no beauty. There's no glory in us. It must come through Christ. The power of the healing flows not from Peter or John, but from Christ himself. The power of the healing flows from Christ himself. Jesus Christ, our risen and reigning Lord, healed this lame man by reaching out and touching him by his Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ did this. Through his church, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ still does these things, these kingdom acts, and he still teaches kingdom truth through us, his people. This is a wondrous truth for us to realize and to walk into as his people. Peter speaks, but he also reaches out and touch, touches. In verse seven, he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. He touched him. You know, who knows what the fellow was like? You know, how clean or not clean he was? Didn't matter to Peter. He reached out and he touched him and he helped him up. It kind of reminds us of when Jesus touched the leper. I want us to note the immediate impact of God's power. I want you to realize that God did this immediately, instantaneously. Peter speaks the words of healing. Peter reaches down and helps the man up. Jesus reaches down and heals the man from heaven. And the man's previously irreparable feet and ankles are instantaneously and completely healed. Not just the bones put back together, but all the muscles that would have been atrophied. Everything fixed back to perfect as his subsequent physical activity will demonstrate. What no doctors, what no healing efforts, what no anything had been tried, nothing could bring relief. Over 40 years, Christ heals in a moment. Do we remember God's power, brothers and sisters, as we pray? Or do we look at the decades of apparently invincible lameness instead? And this is not only 
obviously when we're, when we're helping others, but when we're observing the deficiencies in our own lives as well. Where will we focus? Upon the one who spoke creation into existence? The one who instantaneously brought this man's strength back to his feet? Or upon the lameness? So what happens next? Well, he walks. He leaps. He praises God, wouldn't you? He leaping up. So he didn't just get up. He leaped up stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Later we'll see he's gripping them. What joy this man has. Inexpressible. He leaps. He stands. He walks. He's walking more. He's leaping more. He's praising God more. The lame man knows, knows that God in heaven has healed him. Not Peter, not John, He stays with Peter and John. He doesn't want to be apart from them. He enters into the temple with them. But his praise is for God alone, not for any man. You know, there's a lot of leaping and praising that goes on in our world. Would that it be that the people of God would leap and praise him for what he has done for us. Is it more precious to have your feet and ankles brought to strength or than to have your soul brought into eternal life and to be delivered from your sins. Oh, that we would leap and praise him more. Amen. Bach says, the healing allows the man to walk into the temple proper for the first time. You know, not pulling back from Bach, he, he'd observed this. Look at He'd been seeing these people go in and he gets to go up, go in. Back to Bach. He stood and was walking. He does so with Peter and John. What would normally take months because of muscular atrophy occurs instantly. The idea of an immediate healing is common in Luke's miracle accounts. This man walks, leaps, and praises God, enjoying the gift of his newfound ability. And if there was a dance, he probably would have been there. This man was ready to use his feet. Let the lazy of you who want to stay seated all the time take note. (laughs) The overload and repetitive, back to Bach. The overload and repetitiveness of movement verbs stresses the healing's complete success. Jesus' work has changed this man's life forever. The miracle portrays what Jesus can do and the joy that such work brings. The newly healed man knows that God has been at work and that God has been at work through Jesus. The man has received a new kind of alms. So brothers and sisters, note, where does the joy of God's work in us lead us to? Where does it take us? We see two things here. Into fellowship with his church and into prayers to him with his church. With gladness and praise on our tongues. And this isn't just your local assembly. This is Christians of all sorts. Christians in your neighborhood. Christians at your workplace. Christians at the grocery store. Christians at the post office. Christians wherever you go. What is the impact of this on the surrounding culture? And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. 
You know, we need to be reminded of the joy of our salvation, don't we, brothers and sisters? We need to be reminded of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for each one of us when he reached down from heaven and restored more than just the strength of anything in our bodies, but brought us into eternal life. If this man had cause to praise, then how much more so all of us? The lame man's healed feet fully strengthened along with his ongoing praise because twice now we see him praising God. It grips the attention of the people at the temple that afternoon. They all see it. All the people realize this beautiful gate, lame from birth beggar, is walking and he's praising God for his healing. They see it. This fills all the people with wonder and amazement as they consider his instant healing. Look what has happened. Note God's use of this miracle to generate wonder and amazement at his great power and mercy. They're curious. They're excited. They want to understand. Bach says there's no doubt who he is or what his previous condition has been. So wonder and amazement fill them. This is the only appearance of this combination of the two words in the New Testament. The first term appears three times in the New Testament. All of them are in a reaction to miraculous actions in Luke or Acts. The next term for amazement appears seven times in the New Testament, and five of them are in Luke Acts. Two of them are in Mark, uh, the miracle of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5.42, and then the uh, astonishment at the resurrection announcement in Mark 16.8. And then in Luke, we see in 5.26, Acts 3, 10.10, 11.5, 22.17. So Luke uses this second word a good bit. And this verb here is also used. This term, the verb associated with this term, describes someone emotionally impacted by an experience. As these texts show, the reaction is common for miracles. And I can't help but think about, in contrast, how about the only time we see real emotional reactions in our culture today, help me think it through, maybe at a football game or a basketball game or a track event or maybe a political event, how, why can't we see in our culture people being emotionally impacted by the work of God in display, on display in their midst? Let, let that be what people are emotionally impacted by. Let's pray for that. And I'm not just talking about miracles. Yes, miracles too. But I mean other things like the beauty of God's church, the beauty of service, the beauty of people loving one another. They will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. That God would use all that he does by his power and his mercy in his people to cause the people of the world to have this type of emotionally impactful experience when they are around the people of God. We should expect that. What happened? This lame man was healed. He held on to Peter and John. So that's the setting in which the sermon begins. As He was holding on to them. This is when the people come running. Imagine his gladness. I mean, it just, the text just over and over again calls us into imagining this man's gladness, displaying his inexpressible joy and gratitude to them as God's faithful ministers. He he knows it wasn't their power, and yet God used them. So he's grateful to them. He held on to Peter and John. What joy and what gladness. I wonder when he ever left their side. 
Matthew Henry says, we need not ask why he held them. I believe he scarcely knew himself, but it was in a transport of joy that he embraced them as the best benefactors he had ever met with and hung upon them to agree to a degree of rudeness. He would not let them go forward, but would have them stay with him while he published to all about him what God had done for him by them. Thus he testified his affection to them. He held them and would not let them go. Some suggest that he clung to them for fear, lest if they should leave him, his lameness should return. Those whom God hath healed, love those whom he made instruments of their healing and see the need of their further help. This man is so thankful and so glad and so filled with affection and love towards Peter and John. And this text ends with what's also kind of the introductory verse to the next sermon. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So there's that idea again. They're astonished. They're amazed. They're curious. They're excited. They, they are on edge. They're ready to hear the story. The plot has been told and the elements are in place and it's rising to its crescendo and the people, it's a, it's a page turner and they're ready to hear the answer. God uses this great wonder to create great excitement and amazement and curiosity amongst all the people present that day. They gather to see the miracle and this sets the stage for Peter's second public sermon in Acts. So quickly, some things to bring this home to us today. About Christian friendship. About Christian friendship. How did God bring John and Peter together? We don't know everything, but there are some things that we see here that we can learn from. A couple of things. They shared in the experience of knowing Christ. They had spent time together, the two of them, in knowing Christ together. Next, they had experienced the great joy of sharing in the forgiveness given to them in Christ. And we also see that they are really together ministering in his spirit. And I think for our purposes, we can see we we need all of those things to be Christian friends. We need to share with one another how Christ has been teaching us, what Christ has been helping us grow up in, how Christ gives us joy in our forgiveness And we need to be sharing these experiences with one another. A mutual enjoyment of Christ together and ministering together in Christ's name. Whatever it may be, I know it's a special thing to go out and to be together ministering. And they were on their way to prayer and they had an opportunity to minister. It doesn't appear as though they went to the beautiful gate in order to minister to him. But they were just always ready to minister, and they were together. So bear those things in mind in terms of how God blesses us to grow up in our friendships with one another. And this is true for siblings. This is true for parents and children. This is true for unrelated adults. This this is an important set of ideas for growing in Christian friendship together. Important for man and wife as well. Now, some questions, if you will, kind of from the lame man's perspective. I think this is a really important question. 
The psychologists have lied to us, and our flesh lies to us. What lifelong problems do you have that you have given up on ever seeing changed or healed? Now look, this, this can get pretty personal. You know, what kind of things are a part of your life that you've even, you've even just stopped asking God for healing? You, you know, you'll pray for, your, for work and for money, for alms, but you won't ask God to heal that part of you that you think is permanently broken. I don't know what he will do, but we are told that we do not have because we do not ask. And yet we're also told that this man was healed in spite of asking only for alms. But it would be good to awaken and to examine ourselves. Have we looked away from Christ and looked to other sources, physical healing, emotional healing, psychological healing, relational healing? 40 years of lameness, instantaneously healed. Does God love you any less than that lame man? Is Jesus Christ any different today than he was then? Is his Holy Spirit any less available to us today? Will Jesus not delight to minister to you who he died for? You whom he shed his precious blood to redeem? It's true for each one of us. You know, we're so prone to believe the lies of our flesh and the lies of the psychologist. That's just how I am. That's just how I was made. Well, maybe not. Maybe God might heal you. And if it's a sanctification issue, I can go beyond that and say, I, God in his word promises that he will bring to completion that which he has begun in you. And if it is any point where God has come and through his Holy Spirit and by his word where he has come and he has excavated your soul and he has shined the light of his truth into your soul and he has done what you cannot do, which is to see your own heart. You can't see your own heart. And he's taken you by the hand and walked you into the dark places of your own soul and shown you things that are wrong with you. Will he not heal you? Will he not change you? Will he not make you like Christ? So, another way of asking it is instead of looking for Christ's touch and Christ's presence in your life, whether it's for healing, which may or may not happen, or for sanctification, which is promised at his pace, are you instead seeking man's treasures to try and heal your soul? Because I think alms are maybe kind of a symbol of that. Right? I mean, I see this a lot as a physician. People are looking for healing in all the wrong places. They want to get their pill to make it better. Or, or, or whatever. If you're not a pill person, they want to get their supplement. Whatever it is to make it better. That's one example of how so often we can... And again, nothing necessarily wrong with these things. These are gifts. But where is your hope? Where is your hope? Have you asked God to heal you, to change you? Now, what about from Peter and John's perspective? What, you know, if you're ministering, 
Do you build your life schedule on the corporate prayer and worship times of God's people? It appears that this society's schedule was built around these prayer times. Is that, is that true for you? Do you build your schedule on the prayer times of God's people? And it doesn't have to be here at our church, right? I mean, we have Sunday mornings. We have two Thursdays per month, but it doesn't have to be here. But it appears as though the, the pattern of God's people throughout history has been corporate prayer times way more than just on Sunday mornings. Let me say that again. It appears as though the pattern throughout history has been for the people of God to gather together for corporate prayer time way more than just on Sunday morning. And this again gets to the proximity issue. But, you know, if you do live close enough and it's convenient for you, come on over on a Thursday night. Be here to pray together with God's people. If not here, somewhere else. Look in your neighborhood. Look in your community for a church to join in with the prayers if you can get there and be there with them. Next. Do you see, again, from Peter and John's perspective, do you see that you have all of heaven's power and treasure as your very own? Because that's what Peter meant. What I do have, I will give to you. And he knows what he has, which is everything. Even though currently he doesn't have any gold and silver, he knows that this is his father's world and it's all his. Do you see that's true for you as well? Because I think, you know, a lot of times we tend to look at our bank account or our scuffed up shoes or whatever to kind of think about what we have. Brothers and sisters, the world is ours. And even more, heaven is ours. And all the power of heaven and all the mercy of heaven and all the treasures of heaven are ours. God calls us to walk in that faith and to bring to bear heaven's power, heaven's mercy, heaven's kingdom in the earth as we walk. To see with heaven's eyes as we walk. Like Peter and John did. They didn't just toss them in all. They saw the bigger picture. They knew the real answer. Which brings the next question. Do you see beyond physical needs to spiritual needs and then therefore minister to both body and soul? You can't ignore the body. God didn't just give this man eternal life and leave him crippled. He could have. He may do that sometimes. But in this particular example, what's held out to us is the comprehensive nature of the healing of God's kingdom, body and soul. So don't let someone's physical needs, which we do meet and help with as best as we can, keep you from seeing beyond that and seeking also to bring the message of the kingdom of God, the real treasure, the spiritual, lasting, eternal treasure stored up for us in heaven where moth and rust do not, cannot destroy. Next, do you speak in Jesus' name when you do good? Do you speak in Jesus' name when you do good? There's this thing in the world today that will tell you that when you walk out that door and you go do good, you shouldn't speak of Jesus. Oh, that's a lie. Make sure that no one accidentally connects your good deeds with you. Make sure no one accidentally does that. Tell them in no uncertain terms, Jesus Christ is the only righteous one. 
Jesus Christ is the only one who is good. Jesus Christ is the only one who is powerful. Jesus Christ is the only one who has suffered for our sins. He's the only resurrected one. He's the only holy one. Make sure you tell them that all the good you do is an attempt to do it just in his name. Don't let anyone who knows you think anything different about you. Do you speak in Jesus' name when you do good? What about the people? You know, this is the trend in the book of Acts over and over again. The things that are happening are not done in a corner. They're not done in secret. They're done in enough of a public setting for the people of the world to notice what is going on. So this is when you're out and you're living your life and God is working in you and working through you and you're doing good in his name and giving him the credit, people are going to notice. There's going to be an impact in the world if you are walking with Christ. They are going to say something to you eventually or ask questions, if not of you, then maybe of other Christians. So the question is, should we hope and pray for God to create great public curiosity that stems from his church's ministers, you and me, healing, serving, and sharing the truth in his name. Should we expect great public curiosity? And I think this text tells us yes and amen. But here's, here's the thing. We should also expect what we see in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. And so are you going to be afraid, afraid to be a part of generating that great public curiosity through your life, through your service, afraid of that, of generating that, of, or how can I say it, shy away from that good thing because you're afraid of being persecuted. And that's the choice every Christian faces. Because if you're faithful to Christ, you will understand that you are called to live a public life. If you are faithful to Christ, you are, you'll realize that as you go about your life, you are called to do it in his name. And as you are faithful to Christ and you're being transformed, you'll be more of a servant. You'll confess your sin to people. You'll be different. You'll shine the light of heaven as you go about your business. And you will be a part of what God does to stir up public curiosity and share the gospel. But also, you will be marked and hated by the enemies of God. So, take heart. Be courageous. Remember Jesus. Remember Peter. Remember John. Remember the lame man. Remember the end of the story and know that all those who rage against him are doing so in vain. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we used to rage against you in our souls and sometimes we still do. Lord, we praise you and thank you that you have come and died for our sins. And that you have healed our souls forever and ever. And that our bodies will be resurrected and we will experience perfect eternal life in full health of soul and body and spirit forever and ever. Oh God, until that day, we ask that we would submit ourselves to your touch, Lord Jesus. And Father, that by your spirit, you would continue to work in us, that you would remove from us those things that quench and grieve your spirit, that you would bless us to be those people who are a part of a thriving church, and that we would go about living in such a way, oh God, that as your people... You would use our lives to stir up great public curiosity about Jesus, about the kingdom of God. And that you would bless us to be those who are wise to speak the words of Jesus 
and to speak in His name and to be servants like Him, Lord, everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen.